if you think of it, like, again, like, I feel like there are, like, clear economic motives. Like, it almost does become sus, and you're like, what are they, are they trying to, like, you know, uh, like, cordon off the space to, like, hide Dogman? However, like, you know, they do, like, want people to go there and, like, almost be sacrificed to Dogman. Um, <laughs> so it is odd. I don't know. I mean, yeah. maybe it goes both ways. Although, so, I mean, when you think of national parks, I feel like you associate them with, Teddy Roosevelt, like, as yeah. kind of the champion of them and, like, sort of the great conservationist, right? Mm-hmm. So on that tip, I did, like, you know, remember when I we were doing our Bigfoot episode a lot. Most of what we had to make it into the episode because it's, like, five hours long. But there was one thing that we didn't really touch on, which is uh, Teddy Roosevelt's, like, uh, experience with, or not his experience, but uh, his uh, the story that he recounted in his book, The Wilderness Hunter, an mm-hmm. account of the big game of the United States, which kind of has a... Uh, cryptid aspect to it well you know but, i mean this is the guy who started it all right yeah exactly the guy so who like, established this know? whole system what, what did, did he know? know well it's interesting that he does kind of you know not only that story which i i will get into in a second but there is there is a couple other ones where he sort of alludes to spooky things uh for instance uh he's talking about a native american who he's traveling with and he says amal strongly objected to leaving the neighborhood of the lake he went the first day's journey willingly enough but after that it was increasingly difficult to get him along and he gradually grew sulky for some time we would not find out the reason but finally he gave us to understand that he was afraid because up in the high mountains there were quote-unquote little bad indians who would kill him if they caught him alone especially at night at first we thought he was speaking of stray warriors of the blackfeet tribe but it turned out that he was not thinking of human beings at all, but of hobgoblins. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, my God. Indeed, the night sounds of these great stretches of mountain woodland were very weird and strange. Though I have often and for long periods dwelt and hunted in the wilderness, yet I never before uh, well understood why the people who live in lonely forest regions are prone to believe in elves, wood spirits, and other beings of an unseen world. Our last camp, where we spent several days, was pitched in a deep valley nearly at the head of the stream. Uh, near water. Huh? Our brush shelter stood <laughs> among the, the tall place. coniferous trees that covered the valley bottom, but the altitude was so great the forest extended only a very short distance up the steep mountain slopes. Beyond, on either hand, rose walls of gray rock with snow beds in their rifts, and high above, toward the snow peaks, the great white fields dazzled the eyes. The torrent foamed swiftly by, but a short distance below the mossy level space on which we had built our slight weather shield of pine boughs. Other streams poured into it, uh, from ravines uh, through which they leaped down to the mountainsides. After nightfall, around the campfire, or if I awakened sleeping a little while, I would often lie silently for many minutes together, listening to the noises of the wilderness. At times, the wind moaned ha- harshly through the tops of the tall pines and hemlocks. At times, the branches uh, were still, but the splashing murmur of the torrent never ceased, and through it came other sounds, the clatter of huge rocks falling down the cliffs the dashing of cataracts in far-off ravines, the hooting of owls. Again, the breeze would shift and bring to my ears the ringing of other brooks and cataracts and wind-stirred forests, and perhaps at long intervals the cry of some wild beast, the crash of a falling tree, or the faint rumble of a snow avalanche. If I listened long enough, it would almost seem that I had heard thunderous voices laughing and calling to one another, and as if at any moment some shape might stalk out of the darkness into the dim light of the embers. No, what did he know? Sorry, where was this again? is in the Selkirks on the shores of Kootenai Lake. Where's that? The Selkirk Mountains. Uh, they're a mountain range spanning the northern portion of the Idaho Panhandle, eastern Washington. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Pacific Northwest. Check. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, is there anything else? Oh, yeah. That's not even the... That's just, like, him talking... This is, like, really the... You know, this is the ultimate uh, story that he tells. Uh, Okay. You know, so what did he know? All right. So he says, Frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be very superstitious. They lead lives too hard and practical and have too little imagination and things spiritual and supernatural. I have heard but few ghost stories while living on the frontier... And these few are a perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But I once listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. <laughs> I was told by a grizzled, you know, he means goblin in the sense of like the goblin universe, you know, like the, ge- the general uh, sense of goblin. So Royal I was told, goblin, yeah. Yeah, I was told by a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman, who was born and had passed all his life on the frontier. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale but he was of German ancestry and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghosts and goblin lore so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by Indian medicine men in their winter camps of snow walkers and the specters and the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths and dog and waylay the lonely wanderer who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. And it may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend, and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute, both at the time and still more in remembrance, weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast. Whether this was so or not, no man can say. When the event occurred, Bowen was still a young man, and was trapping with a partner among the mountains dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of the Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which ran a small stream said to contain many beaver. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was there slain, seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, weighed very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass, where they left them in an open beaver meadow, the rocky timber-clad ground being from thence onwards impracticable for horses. Then they struck out on foot through the vast, gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp, as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there was much down timber, although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached camp. The glade in which it was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rising round it like a wall. One side was a little stream, beyond which rose the steep mountain slopes, covered with the unbroken growth of the evergreen forest. They were surprised to find that during their short absence something, apparently a bear, had visited camp, and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs, and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding the lean-to, laying out their beds and stores and lighting the fire. While Bauman was making ready supper, it was already dark. His companion began to examine the tracks more closely, and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up, where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand flickered out, he returned and took another, repeating his inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness and suddenly remarked, Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. 
Bauman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right, and upon again examining the tracks of the torch, they certainly did seem to be made by but two paws or feet. No. No. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being, and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as a thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest in the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look uh, at the few traps they had set the previous evening and to put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw, hardly to their astonishment, that the lean-to had been again torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned, and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp, it had gone along the soft earth by the brook, where the footprints were as plain as if on snow. And after a careful scrutiny of the trail, it did certainly seem as if, whatever the thing was, it had walked off on but two legs. The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night, one or the other sitting on the guard most of the time. About midnight, the thing came down to the forest opposite, across the brook, and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a particularly sinister sound, yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were the more ready to do this because, of, in spite of seeing a good deal of game, uh, they had caught very little fur. However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning they kept together, picking up trap after trap, each one empty. On first leaving camp, they had a disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed, and now and then there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp. In the high, bright sunlight, their fears seemed absurd to the two-armed men, accustomed as they were, through long years of only wandering in the wilderness to face every kind of danger from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from the little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bauman volunteered to gather these and bring them in, while his companion went ahead to camp and made ready the packs. On reaching the pond, Bauman found three beaver in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. He took several hours securing and repairing the beaver, and when he started homewards, he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was getting. As he hurried towards camp, under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest weighed on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles, and the slanting sun rays striking through the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmered indistinctly. There was nothing to break the ghostly stillness which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber, primeval forests. At last, he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay, and shouted as he approached it but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs, wrapped and arranged. At first, Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. 
Stepping forward, he again shouted as he did, so his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found the body was still warm, but the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature, printed in the soft soil, told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packings, had sat down in the spruce log with his face as a fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking nearby in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled around it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and, and over it, and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off at speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night, until far beyond the reach of pursuit. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. No. I knew that motherfucker was dead as soon as he's like, I'm just going to go back to the camp and pack up everything. <laughs> yeah, like, no, he's dead. Yeah. Oh my God. That's horrifying. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Well, I mean, uh, that's an interesting tale. Yeah. From a mysterious German frontiersman. Yes, a mysterious German frontiersman. I mean, if you trust honest Teddy, I guess. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> he that hits a few markers for Bigfoot, not going to lie, right? Yeah. Near water, walks on two feet, uh, smells the, really the, bad. The moan. Moans. Yeah, mm, that's a pretty big tell. Yeah, definitely. But then but murders the fangs a guy. kind of throw it off. So it was a dog man. Uh, well, I mean, oh, you th- oh, okay. So it's a dog man. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, whimper. But I mean, maybe dog man would have eaten him. I don't know. Well, also dog man much more seems to have a reputation as like a killer than Bigfoot. True. Though, though if you believe the missing 411 insinuations, there that that's kind of the most interesting thing about David Pilates and like his relationship with Bigfoot is he seems like all the other Bigfootologists to kind of love Bigfoot or, you know, have a certain uh, affinity for Bigfoot, you know? Yeah. Maybe not as as uh, loudly as expressed as others. But, like, the implication sometimes that he hints at in some of these cases where people are, like, killed and, like, murdered yeah. is that, like, Bigfoot killed them. But right. you don't usually hear a lot about Bigfoot, like, murdering people, you know? Maybe that's because of the sentimentality of the Bigfoot community. They don't like to... Or they, they think, you know, he's like an oppressed being, you know, that yeah the hunters have been trying to kill him for, for so long and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, but this sounds a little more like Dogman, yeah. like he, the, the world's going to end. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, Bigfoot, why well, Bigfoot I don't usually think of as a biter, you know, <laughs> regardless of whether he's portrayed as violent. I feel like he's more of like, I mean, I guess maybe like some apes, they do have big kind of fang teeth. Maybe he's yeah, got them. some but gorillas. I mean, we're talking about Jin here anyway, so... <laughs> true, true. Yeah. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad.